0: I'm from Oklahoma, which means that I am ethnically Republican. I speak country club cowboy hat as my default language.
1: That's Andrew Heaton, indie-minded political satirist, for the second of our two American independence-themed episodes on The Purple Principle. I'm Robert Peeves.
2: And I'm Barbara Bogave, co-host today for our conversation with Andrew, even though he did write a takedown of my adopted city of LA.
1: And Barbara, we won't ask you to utter the book title, which is Los Angeles' is Hideous, Poems About an Ugly City. Andrew's the author of a few other humor books, including Inappropriately Human, and Laughter Is Better Than Communism. He also hosts an indie-themed podcast called The Political Orphanage.
0: I'd say I am a, a temperamental moderate who wants to help people, but thinks the government's not very effective at it.
1: But Andrew doesn't just make jokes about politics. He's a former congressional staffer, worked for years in D.C. as a policy wonk by day and open mic comedian by night.
0: I'm from Oklahoma, which is the Canada of Texas. (laughs) So, thank you for the the lone okey back there. For those of you who haven't been before, uh, I want you to imagine 1956. And we're good. (laughs) That's pretty much all
2: you need. In a bit, we'll talk with Andrew about some of the challenges performing stand-up in a polarized age. But let's kick things off with a more philosophical question. I asked Andrew whether the COVID epidemic, the greatest public health crisis in a century, challenges his libertarian, minimal government inclinations.
0: I think libertarians tend to kind of come in two flavors. Flavor A is... Government tends to not work very well. Freedom works pretty well. So let's be careful when employing government. That's the group A. Group B is all government is evil and publicly funded stop signs are a form of slavery and anarchism and and I've never been a part of that wing. So from my perspective, I would say kind of my my default, and I'll own this as the little L libertarian guy, if you want to take people's money or make them do things using force of law, I think the onus is on you to explain that there is a overwhelming public necessity for a problem to be solved by the government and to explain why your solution is going to achieve that end. And if you can meet those two criteria, I will support you on that. So when it comes to COVID, I am a little bit challenged by it, but it's not... It, it, for me, it, it's really more a question of balancing efficacy versus individual rights. The sort of basic premise of can you infringe on individual rights for the greater good? I, yes, you can. Like if um, you know, if my pathogens are going to kill other people, then it's no longer purely an individual situation and that there is a, a, a reason for the government to intervene. So for me, it's more just efficacy, what's going to work, what's going to be Kind of governmental virtue signaling versus actual science backed solutions to problems.
2: It's clear that politics came first for you and then comedy, but what was the tipping point for you from your Capitol Hill days and your Mm -hmm. politics days to full time stand up? Yeah, you know, well, they
0: actually kind of started around the same time. Like when I was in college, I was doing a bunch of political things. I was in a a mock government um, group and Page at the state legislature when I was in high school. But I was also writing funny columns for the newspaper, very much in the vein of Dave Barry, who's a personal hero of mine. And that kind of continued. But the difference was between these two, uh, one of the members of my family's worked in politics. So I grew up going to the state legislature. That seemed like a career option, which made sense to me because I'd seen people do it. Whereas I had never met a comedian when I was in college, I think I, I maybe I did briefly run into Zach Galifianakis my freshman year. He bought me a beer underage. Thank you, Zach. Uh, but but other than that, <laughs> I hadn't met any comedians. Right? I graduated from a state where there are more cows than passports, so like that was not something that seemed like a possible life outcome. So when I moved to DC and was working on the Hill, I started doing stand-up at night. I was doing open mics and bar shows and things like that, doing them. Two, three times a week, which you need to do when you're beginning stand-up comedy because you really need to get up on stage a lot. And was day job, necktie man, nighttime, degenerate pseudo-drunk telling jokes to other drunks and neckties. And uh, then I I left the hill, I should say voluntarily without scandal, because I had a scholarship to go to the University of Edinburgh to get a master's degree in international politics. I was the um Resident comedian at a thing called Edinburgh Saturnalia Cabaret. I went up and told jokes after a girl took her clothes off, but before a dude ate light bulbs, which I think was probably the apotheosis of my comedy
2: I career. I know think- that guy who eats light bulbs. I've seen him at the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. He's really? amazing. So y- you were well placed.
0: Yes, I know it was it was it was incredibly <laughs> How fun. Do you like it, it was that act. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was it fit really well. Right. So I was doing that, and then I went back to D.C. as per the plan. And I was not able to go right back into a suit and tie job. I actually found it rather difficult. I wound up working as a Segway tour guide, giving historical tours. And I did that for a few months and I went, wait a minute, if I'm just going to be doing like odd job survival jobs anyway, there's no reason for me to be in D.C. I'm, I'm only in D.C. because this seems like the logical professional thing for me to do. If that's not happening, why am I here? So I moved to New York. I got snapped up in television with surprising speed. That happened because there was a show called The Independence that was starting out. And somebody had told them, hey, we know this guy that thinks uh, he's funny, but he likes Milton Friedman, which is not – there's not a lot of us. There's only about three people in the country that like Milton Friedman that are funny. I'm one of them. And so they (laughs) hired me. But I basically realized, oh, I can make money at this. I can be funny. And eventually the two sort of joined up together. And I went, oh, what if I told jokes about politics? What if I just fused these things together? And that's what I've been doing the last five years.
2: So that is really organic path. But it leaves me with this question about your comedy, what the motivation is. I mean, are you trying to unite people? You're an independent. Mm-hmm. You flirted with libertarianism. Do you think in terms of changing minds or what?
0: Wonderful question. When it comes to stand-up, when I do stand-up, I'm typically just lobbing jokes in an audience and it's just whatever mechanism any comedian wants laughter for is why I'm doing that. Human connection or applause or whatever. But when it comes to political comedy specifically, you were right. I do have an agenda. I have a goal. My personal mantra that I have when I'm working on my own stuff is make people laugh, make people think. I do not think that it is my job to be a gladiator on behalf of a team or ideas, I have my opinions and I am I try to be upfront with them. I don't claim to be objective, but I do claim to be even-handed. And I feel like humor is a really good way to get people to suspend whatever their innate defenses are temporarily. I find that if I'm making an argument to somebody that we're all going to get our hackles up real quick, but if I'm making jokes, people will generally stick around for the 20 seconds Uh, to get to the punchline. And so the comedy, I want to bring joy, and I also just want to make people think about stuff. I'd say the broader mission that I've been engaging in the last three or four years hosting my podcast, which is now my day job, I host a show called The Political Orphanage for similarly independent people. With that show, it is more temperamental. I think that most Americans and most people are decent folks. And the arguments that we're having for most people, are more to do with how do we achieve a positive end that we all want. And we're fighting about the methodology to get there. And I think we've lost sight of that. I think the way we should look at politics is we shouldn't look at legislation based on the intent. We should look at legislation based on the outcome. But with people, we should invert that. I shouldn't judge Barbara or Robert based on the outcome of your policy. I should judge you as a person based on the intent. And I think we've lost that. And the reason I say that is I think immigration is great. I would- triple the amount of immigrants coming into the country every year. I know people that are old labor Democrats and also Republicans that think if you bring in a lot of immigrants, it's going to lower the wage floor and that's going to hurt American workers. I disagree with them on that, but I don't think they're coming from a bad place. And I've been wrong about all sorts of things in my life. So I need other people that I disagree with to point out my own epistemological failings to me and keep me honest and keep me smart. And they need me for the exact same reason. And so I'm trying to kind of bridge that and make a space on the political orphanage where people can come in, be exposed to contrary ideas, be exposed to other viewpoints and recognize that you're allowed to be friends with this person even if you disagree with them. And that it would do well for all of us to have a dollop of intellectual humility.
1: That was a bit more than a dollop of Andrew Heaton there, author, satirist, podcaster, and Milton Friedman apostle of sorts.
2: Rob, I really appreciate his point that we should judge legislation based on outcome, not intent, since so much legislation does have unintended consequences.
1: Like inflation, for example, we're seeing some of that consequence right now. But Andrew also says we should judge people by their intent, especially their good intentions. It's a message we've heard often on the show, So before hearing more from Andrew, let's hear just a clip, which is even less than a dollop, from our previous guest, Monica Guzman. She's now at Braver Angels. But back in 2017, she led a group of blue Seattle liberals to talk politics with rural red conservatives in Sherman County, Oregon.
2: So the thing that that trip really did for everyone who was part of it, including the folks from Sherman County, was get curious about other people with other people. It's something that's getting harder and harder to do in these United States. As the blue zip codes get bluer and the red zip codes get redder and people disinvite each other from Thanksgiving, you know, all these opportunities that we had to hold that glue between difference, we are eliminating and that's tragic and not an easy thing to do. But Andrew Heaton's gig as a stand-up has not doing just that. He's traveled all over the country on his comedy tours, and he's lived in some very politically diverse places. Oklahoma, Washington, New York, LA, now Austin, Texas.
1: So we wondered, what has Andrew learned crossing county and party lines about what makes Americans tick, and what makes them laugh, or grimace, or heckle? (laughs)
0: Yay! Yeah, Libertarians! Fiscally conservative, socially irresponsible. We're like Republicans who throw awesome parties. We're, we're Democrats who are economically literate. It's the best of both worlds. For me, I think this is part of the reason that I do what I do is having lived in Oklahoma and loving a lot of people there actively that I'm related to, but having also lived in California and New York and Austin and loving a lot of people from there, I am capable of going, oh, people I disagree with are still decent human beings. And I think we're increasingly getting to a point where you don't have to meet anybody you disagree with on a regular basis. And then they just become these kind of evil cartoon characters to you.
2: I'm really glad you brought up siloing because I wanted to ask you about how you think about that and your comedy, because you've said that you don't do political stand-up on stage with normies, meaning non-political <laughs> right. type audiences. Yeah, yeah. And here you are, you know, talking about something very real to our show and everyone concerned with uh, with partisanship, which is keeping the conversation going mm-hmm. and trying to undo the silos. So why why not talk funny politics to normies?
0: Great question. Uh, it's basically because I don't want to lose them. So uh, I, I, do, I do two different sets. I've got a political set that I do, which I do pretty regularly, and I'm paid for it to do for think tanks and advocacy groups. So somebody will call me up, and they'll go, you that funny guy that likes Milton Friedman? And I'll go, yeah. And they'll go, do you want to – We'll give you $1,000 <laughs> to be only funny. There's one. For, yeah, it is, yeah, there's not many of us. They're You're like, right. well, we'll give you $1,000 $1, if you them. want to come tell jokes to the Chamber of Commerce for you know 30 minutes. And I'll go, this sounds great. And so I'll go do it, right? So in that instance, then I like, and I have like really granular jokes. Like I have jokes about occupational licensing, which I have to say is pretty funny, by the way. Can I tell you this one? Go for it. Okay. I'm not going to go into full stand-up mode, but you have to be licensed to be a mortician Right. If you screw up, the worst case scenario is you bring the body back to life. Like you can't hurt <laughs> the corpse. So and anyway, I've got a bunch of jokes like that, which by the way, kills for people that hate occupational licensing. Kills. Uh, so I've got, I've got lots of jokes like that. Yeah. I don't mind doing those jokes for an audience. But what I've found through trial and error over the course of my career is audiences are on the defensive when it comes to politics. So is- they get
2: uncomfortable.
0: They get uncomfortable. They're afraid that I'm going to point to them and go, who'd you vote for? Why did you vote for him? And then I'm going to like, which I, I, that doesn't sound super funny to me, but they're afraid of that. And then the other thing that I found. Um, well, wait,
2: wait, wait, before you move on, why not yeah. make people uncomfortable? I mean, isn't that what comedians do? You know, Lenny Bruce, the, the
0: George Carlin. The primary job of a comedian is to make him laugh. I think a lot of the time that humor is released by tackling things that have psychic tension and releasing that tension. Okay, so the, then that's the,
2: my question, actually. Mm-hmm. Is it harder to do this kind of comedy that George Carlin and Lenny Bruce did? And for sure, Lenny Bruce got in a lot of trouble for his, but for sure, both yeah. of them did. But is it harder to do that kind of political comedy because we're in such a polarized era?
0: Yes, Yes, it is. What I tried to do for a while that struck me as fairly equitable, being an independent, I would make fun of Republicans for a minute. Then I'd make fun of Democrats for a minute. Then I'd make fun of libertarians for a minute. And in my mind, the audience would go, well, this guy's a straight shooter. He's taking shots at all sides, right? Yeah, that's, and that's just not fair use I'm... there. Yep. Uh-huh. And that would work if I were maybe writing a book or something, but it, it, audiences don't actually think that way. What they do is you just turn off a third of the audience and they just shut down. And then they start coming back when you make fun of other people, but those people shut down. And so you're you're in this process of having to reboot the audience every few minutes. And so just on a structural level, it doesn't work very
2: well. I do wonder how wokeness has affected your work. and whether you fight a voice in the back of your head, you know, a voice saying something like, oh, no, can I really say this? Because I would think that would be the death of comedy. And in some ways, that's the death of a lot of conversations that we could be having together.
0: Yes and yes. (laughs) Great question, Barbara. I'll add to this. The thing that surprised me culturally in California that I had not anticipated during the brief amount of time I was there was I would have a conversation with someone who was an overt Democrat who probably voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and voted for Hillary Clinton back in the day. And multiple times I would have somebody... Look past me as if they were about to say something racist, like looking to see if there were black people afoot and then would go, I think the wokeness has gone a little too far. And it it felt, I was like, from my perspective, I'm like, we're in your Vatican. Like we're in Los Angeles. Like this is, we're in your capital. You You should feel very comfortable. Yeah. So like why, that surprised me because you don't see that in Austin. Like people don't like. I think, uh, you know, actually we should wear masks. Like people are just a little more full-throated about whatever their opinions are. I think that your question is salient to both points, Barbara, when it comes to comedy. I think comedy is ideally performed and is optimal and most productive when you're loose and you're happy. At least for me. I know that there are traumatized comedians that do well with darkness. I don't. But do you have a
2: specific example of that voice cutting in on you?
0: Uh, what I see happening right now with wokeness and comedy is, one, I think that people are, are really misinterpreting the fault lines between woke and whatever non-woke is. I think that this is frequently laziness on the part of partisans that want to make it a red team versus blue team thing because that's the easiest dichotomy to interpret the world through. But oftentimes the world we live in is nuanced and has different fault lines than that. I think that that's an example of that. So I think when it comes to wokeness and the culture war... The battle is not between conservatives and liberals and never really has been. It's between pluralists and authoritarians. Uh, If we go back to the 90s when I was a kid, when I'm getting my comedic bearings by watching The Simpsons. The pearl-clutching people that were really worried about word choice were the conservatives back then. The Simpsons were getting in trouble because they'd say, but, or they'd say, shut up or something, or Murphy Brown is a single mom and the vice president of the United States is talking about how this is leading to the demoralization of the American people. And at that time, Democrats were the ones that would go, guys, it's a sitcom. It's a cartoon show. This is not an exegesis. This is just a big hole we shovel jokes into. Try to have fun. Calm down. And the conservatives were kind of the church lady folks that were getting worked up. And that is now switched around to where the pearl clutching people getting really worked up are the woke people who tend to be to the left. And I think that the kind of spectrum there that's actually operating is, are you okay with people being in error or do we all have to be on board for the thing? And it's not fun doing comedy for the people that all want to be on board for the thing. And it does make you a little concerned to to go be funny on them. I'll say stand-up comedy clubs tend to not be those people. It is self-selecting on both ends. The comedians tend to be heterodox by nature and sort of anti-authoritarian and not prone to sticking to the script. And the crowd tends to be drunks that are out late, who don't care. Well, Andrew, I'm
1: gonna follow up with kind of a two-part question. It seems that comedy has been sort of sucked out of Washington too. If you go back 30 or 40 years ago, I remember anecdotes about Ted Kennedy and John McCain joking about how I'm really gonna beat you up on the Sunday morning shows, or that Mm -hmm. was a good one as they passed each other in the halls. It's hard to imagine that now, these people have lost their sense of humor. At the same time, they're always performing for their base Mm -hmm. and they're never really themselves.
0: (sighs) Great question. Um, So a lot of the people that I knew that were on Capitol Hill are no longer there. I'll say when I was on Capitol Hill and I came in just before the tea party, so, like think cap and trade Obamacare, that era pre tea party at that time, I will say I was very pleasantly surprised to discover how bipartisan washington d c was and uh, and that kind of happened across the board now on the on the politician' side, it was a little unctuous in that the politicians would put on a show, but it was a spectacle that they would do intentionally for sound bites to go back to their constituency, so for example. An episode relayed to me, I did not witness this, but I trusted my colleague that was on the hill at the time said that he'd watched one of these congressional hearings where the congressman just lit into this person and was just, you know, raking him through the coals. And then afterwards came up and went, Hey, I'm really sorry. I know I came hard on you, but I've been kind of low in the polls and I really needed to show my constituency that I'm tough on this issue. You know, enjoy your time in Washington. I think that happens. And you'd see like like at the time I was there, I guess. Barbara Boxer retired, right? She's no longer the senator? Correct. Right. So at the time I was there, Barbara Boxer and Jim Inhofe would fight like cats and dogs. Then they'd go get dinner. They were and are friends. Uh, Jim Inhofe being an extremely conservative Republican from Oklahoma. And I'd say in DC in general, then and now, if you can't be friends with people you disagree with, it is a professional hindrance to you. Unless you are a super activist working for a super activist organization. Now that said, I am told by my Democratic colleagues that that began dampening with the Tea Party coming in and that the Tea Party viewed itself as a combative and insurgent force fighting the entrenched bad guys and that that old polity did not exist with the new people. And the other thing I'd add to that is uh, you, you all have probably covered this before we began the program, but the current process we have right now of first past the polls and open primaries means that if you were a politician, you were generally not worried about losing to someone from the other party. You were far more worried about getting primaried. And that is the concern for you, is that somebody is going to say that you are a traitor or a cuck or you're friendly with the enemy or you're a limp-wristed centrist or something like that. So you got to go hard to the edges, right? Well, part and parcel to that is you can't be seen in public being friendly with anybody because we've got to a point now where we don't view the other party as the opposition. We view them as enemies. And that is a qualitatively different state to be in. And we've moved on from thinking people are an error to thinking they're in sin and so if you're a congressman you're a senator and you're hanging out with these sinners that's different than hanging out with people that are wrong and that's uh, again just lamentable for everyone involved in that process from the politicians all the way down to us and the constituency
2: Andrew Heaton, indie-minded, political satirist, stand-up comedian, and podcaster, and the final guest in our American Independence-themed episodes this month.
1: And Barbara, I do think that compassionate piece says so much about Andrew. There's so much hard-edged, mean-spirited humor out there on and offline but Andrew's humor has much better intentions.
2: It does. And if you all listening out there appreciated it and you'd like to check out more of Andrew's comedy and his podcast books and live appearances, you can find all of that at mightyheaton.com. That's mighty, H-E-A-T-O-N.com.
1: Thanks to the mighty Andrew Heaton for joining us today and to Barbara for co-hosting through our recent California series And on to this special Indie Day Month episode with Andrew Heaton. Barbara, a pleasure throughout. You handled Andrew's skewering of L.A. over two episodes so gracefully.
2: Well, thank you, Rob. I really didn't want to get into a whole wrestling match with Andrew over L.A., but I will say it is a city that transcends all the cliches about it, including how ugly it is. Uh, But I did enjoy talking with him, and I really enjoyed doing it with you.
1: Well, great. Then maybe you can hop back on for some future episodes. Special thanks again to Andrew Heaton and Barbara Bogave, as well as to all our listeners from the whole Purple Principle team. Next up on the Purple Principle, we're freshening up a re-podcast of one of our most insightful discussions with noted historian and columnist Jeff Cabaservice. He's author of the book Rule and Ruin, on the downfall of moderates in the modern Republican Party.
0: You know, I think there's actually a lot of people in the Republican Party in Congress who are not happy. At this particular moment, I think the job of being a legislator has become much less satisfying for a lot of reasons. And these reasons, some of them predated the Trump era. But I think Trump has made things worse. So I actually, despite what I just told you, do have some hope for moderate Republicans in this forthcoming Congress.
1: With important 2022 primaries like Arizona coming up soon and November general elections not far off. There are big, important question marks surrounding the GOP that affect all Americans. Will the Republican Party maintain its populist fervor of the past several elections? Or will more traditional, even-tempered conservatives like Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia and the few remaining moderates, like Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, gain more influence within the GOP? Tune into our episode with Jeff Cabaservice to better understand the forces and factions at work this 2022 election cycle. All original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.